When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And in for Adam this week, I'm Mariah Gates. Listen, self-defense is instinctual common sense. You try to punch me in the face, I stop it from happening. Whatever, I don't care. It's easy. Look, this is how we do this. Okay, we'll start with Taekwondo, which I've got covered. High school lesbian fight club comedy. That's the shorthand description for Bottoms, the latest from Shiva Baby director Emma Seligman. It opens this weekend. We've got a review of Bottoms, and we revisit 1983's Risky Business, which celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. It's all ahead. Portia, there's no substitute. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. Adam is off again. He's likely still unpacking moving boxes. Now, last week I had Chicago Tribune film critic Michael Phillips on. He was fantastic, but he did have a preponderance of base. So this week we have Chicago-based critic Mariah E. Gates. Good to see you, Mariah. Always a pleasure. Last week now, Michael and I, we went back 30 years to talk about one of the great Chicago movies, 1993's The Fugitive. Mariah, you and I, we're going to go back another decade, all the way to 83 for another classic Chicago movie, suburban Chicago anyway, Risky Business. It was the number eight movie at the domestic box office that year. And I got to say, though, not exactly the suburban Chicago I grew up in during the 1980s. How how about you, Mariah? When you were when you were a teen, were you driving around in your parents' Porsches quite a lot? Absolutely not. I grew up on a rural mountain um, and did not learn how to drive till I was 23. So. Okay. So so maybe we won't identify with that element of risky business, but I'm sure there's other stuff we can get into. We will get to that 40th anniversary review of risky business later in the show. First, let's discuss what high school life looks like at the movies, at least circa 2023, with our review of Bottoms. What's your plan here? Jeff is psychotic, and they're picking on the weak and defenseless. So we teach a bunch of girls how to defend themselves. They are grateful to us. Adrenaline is flowing. Next thing you know, Isabel and Brittany are kissing us on the mouth. You can be our club advisor. You know, my mom did say I need to pick up a hobby. Welcome to our fight club. Let's get it popping in this motherfucker. Mariah, we might have to consider you our Rachel Senate correspondent here on Film Spotting. You previously joined me last August to review Bodies, 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 in which Senate was among the ensemble cast of 20-somethings stuck together in a sprawling mansion during a storm at the mercy of a mysterious killer. Now we have Bottoms, which Senate wrote with director Emma Seligman. The pair previously paired up on Shiva Baby, a dark comedy, and 2021 Film Spotting Golden Brick nominee, in which Senate played a near graduate suffering through familial humiliations at an endless funeral. 
The tone of bottoms is very different, it seems to me, than Shiva Baby, Mariah. This means to put a queer spin on teen sex comedies like Revenge of the Nerds, American Pie, Superbad, and the partially queer Booksmart. And so it's much broader in scale and sense of humor. Senate and Io Edabiri of Who Lose the Bear play PJ and Josie respectively, best friends who are societal outcasts at school, not so much because they're gay, but because they're, quote, ugly and untalented. And so they hatch a plan to start an empowering self-defense class for women, hoping it will bring some women their way. I'm sure we'll get into how Bottoms fits into the teen sex comedy genre, its feminist politics, and how funny we both found it. But I want to start, Mariah, with those performances. In your mind, does this continue Senate's comic streak? And what did you make of her pairing with Edabiri? I absolutely think it does. I think she is like this new generation's comic genius. She's reminds me of like Goldie Hawn or somebody who is really good at making any situation just a little bit funnier. Mm. <laughs> um, she's good with dialogue. She's good with uh, her body. She's good with any kind of comedy. I think um, I want to see her in like a straight slapstick next. I think she would kill it. But um, speaking of her relationship with with Io, what's interesting, and I wish I had had time to watch them, they made several shorts together during quarantine Mm. uh, because I believe they were buddies or are buddies. And uh, I think they've been building this chemistry for years, or I don't think. I know they've been building this chemistry for years, and you can feel it in the performance. They feel like people who have been friends since the sandbox or or whatever it is they were supposed to have met in this film. They, They... don't, it doesn't feel forced at all. And you have like Rachel is this, the larger than life sort of absolute loud mess. And then you have Aya, who is the more contained mess of a person, but still <laughs> very much a mess. Um, and they sort of play off each other in that very traditional Abbott and Costello, Crosby, and who am I thinking of? Hope. Oh, Hope. Hope yep. Sort of, yeah, Hope and Crosby, Ethel and Lucy sort of comic duo and uh i hope they do another film together too they could both do slapstick as far as i'm concerned because they they could take punches they can do pratfalls <laughs> yeah i was hoping you know that this would be a continuation of senna and we're going to have her for a long time doing all sorts of comedies as you say but coming out of this and it based on what you just said i also hope that she and Adabiri continue to work together because i did not know that background but it is absolutely there on the screen. The easy interplay, the waiting for the other person to do something out of excitement and anticipation because then they'll get to play with whatever was tossed their way. You can see that back and forth as performers, but really as characters. They're playing longtime friends in this movie, and so that helps them to recreate that sort of camaraderie. I think that's the foundation of this film and you are right in your characterization of what they do differently. I think of Senate as blurting out one-liners, you know, and, and what she does then is every situation she comes into, this speaks to your point about Goldie Hawn. I think she escalates it in some way. Mm-hmm. So it gets sillier. It gets crazier or it takes a, a left turn. You didn't expect it gets more awkward <laughs> often. And then you have Edabiri who is, 
she deflects more. Her sense of humor is to quietly deflect things. But in doing that, she's slipping in so many jokes as well as facial gestures or some sort of response to what she's just heard. So, yeah, there's this back and forth between them that is absolutely wonderful. I imagine would work well to your other point in a straight drama in some way, absolutely a slapstick. And I don't know, what would you call what we're getting here? Because I do think it's quite different from Shiva Baby, which was um, in a lot of ways an incredibly dark, atmospheric, verging on comic horror type movie. Yeah. And, and this is very much more in the vein of those high school teen sex comedies I mentioned with uh, a lot of sight gags, so many funny things going on in the background here. Yes, some one-liners, but just a different type of mania to it. And I don't know, did did you feel a big distinction between Shiva Baby and this just in terms of comic tone as well? Oh yeah, I think uh, Shiva Baby is definitely a, a comic horror, as you, as you say, or a horror of manners is what I like to call it when it came out. But this one reminded me a lot of actually Heather's in its heightened mm. rules of high school, the heightened sort of characters where like the football players are are even more ridiculous than you know normal football players and in terms of the um heightened violence in the movie yeah um it's it's satirical violence in a way that heather's was as well just with the punches and the escalation that happens in the final act um replacing the murders in heather's and um I could see sort of like they took, because Heather's isn't a straight satire of those sex comedies. It is satire of high school, more like John Hughes. Yes. Sort of uh, satirical John Hughes. Whereas this is like taking that Heather's satire and laying it on the like Porky's sex Mm -hmm. comedies, um, which is, I think, a really fascinating way of meshing the two modes of like 80s high school comedies, but there's also little tiny tidbits of like 90s and early 2000s millennial kind of humor in there as well that's sort of layered. And you can see like how they probably grew up watching the 80s comedies and then the 90s comedies happened when they were, you know, teenagers or, and then now they're sort of putting it all in a blender and creating something that's not quite any of it. Mm. Um, It's not as, it's not as stylized as something as like Knives and Skin, which came out a few years back, which definitely took that mold and turned it into like a, almost a horror musical. But this has that same kind of, it's not quite reality feeling. Yes. Um, that's also like satirical feminism, which is a new kind of, a new kind of feminism. I think it, that you're seeing in cinema. I want to get back to the satirical feminism, but just in terms of the heightened reality and maybe they're related. I'm curious to hear what you say about that, but I want to go back to the depiction of this football team. Um, because it so is funny. so good. And it's essentially the defining characteristic of this high school where PJ and Josie find themselves just trying to survive. This school has entirely given itself over. And I didn't, my school had a football team, but we weren't big enough of a school for it to really mirror something like this. This high school has entirely given over its entire personality and reason for being to the football team and to the quarterback, Jeff, in particular, played by Nicholas Galatine, uh, who is quite funny, I think, as as the quarterback. But you have posters of 
Jeff, the quarterback, plastered all over, over the school that are very sexually explicit posters of him. These pep rallies turn into violent expressions of idol worship of him. I love little touches like how the football players, they're always in uniform, not just in game day. Every day, they're in always. uniform, even wearing their cleats. <laughs> That's a great visual gag that you kind of hear them clacking along the halls, which also makes them seem more like prowling animals, which is part of the intent here, right? This is this is survival of the fittest, where PJ and Josie are just trying to survive here. And how about the great visual gag? I'm not going to go through all of them because I don't want to give too many away. But the one classroom where you notice in the far back corner, we never cut to a close-up of this, but one of the football players is actually in like a Hannibal Lecter-style cage. And I think the implication is that, you know, he's so strong, he's so manly that that he he couldn't even be let loose among the weaklings or he would just devour them. And so this depiction of a high school, you're right, is so heightened to such a ludicrous degree, but I think has to evoke the experience of what it's like to be someone who's going to school and you're not a member of that ruling class. That's got to be what it feels like, right? Yeah, I, I also think because these are the untalented, ugly, untalented, nerdy queer girls that are clearly the, the smart girls, you can see from their the background of their bedroom that they are well-read, intelligent girls. Yeah. They go to these classes and it's like they sit down and 10 minutes later the class is over and they haven't learned anything. <laughs> and that is exactly how I felt mm, in high school. Interesting. I would, it felt like 40 minutes went by just trying to get everyone to sit down and like focus. And then by the time we were quote unquote learning, now I, I did not go to a good high school. I went to a rural high school that was lucky to have teachers, frankly. Um, and, but I would get, I would get there and it would be like, you'd copy the notes off the board and then the lecture would literally just be the notes you just copied. And I'm like, what is this, are, is this learning? Like, <laughs> are we expanding on this? Am I just copying stuff down? It really felt like everything is sports. There's no learning. Yes. Why am I even here? I, I've also liked that there's a running gag about the three different schools that these two smart, artsy lesbians might go to. And it was Emerson, Wesley, and Sarah Lawrence, I think. Wesleyan yeah, and that Sarah That sounds Lawrence. right. That sounds right. And I was like, <laughs> like that's funny. Um, I just think, I think it's smart on so many levels. And to your point about the guy in the cage in the background, like it's one of those movies, every time you watch it, you're going to notice something else in the background. For sure. Something on the on the blackboard, something, some poster in the hallway. It, there was too many for me to even clock the first time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down a few, but I know a ton were getting past me. So are you saying, Mariah, that Marshawn Lynch here is is not maybe the ideal teacher? <laughs> Honestly, he was so funny, and Hysterical. I didn't even know he could act. Oh, like, really? <laughs> I, I guess I haven't seen him in anything. You know, it was a so. surprise to me, even though I have seen him in in Murderville. That that was mm. like that sort of improvisational. Um, I think it was a Netflix show with a Will Arnett, and he was one of the the guest stars on that, which was curious, and he made me laugh a few times. But I wouldn't have expected anything like this as this teacher who is very much as you describe, doesn't get a, cover a lot of material in class and vacillates between the stereotypical, you know, the good hearted teacher who has a soft spot for the underdogs to just a guy who's so messed up and makes a direct pivot towards hating women essentially by the <laughs> end. And those are a lot of different notes that Marshawn Lynch, a former NFL player, does hit quite well, I think. So, yeah, let's. That's the hating women thing. I mean, tell me a little more 
about what you mean when you're talking about satirical feminism, especially as you see that playing out with Bottoms? Particularly, you brought up Booksmart earlier, which is a film I did not particularly care for um, as much as a lot of people. I liked the claymation part. That was fun. (laughs) But uh, it felt to me like a, a movie that really wanted you to know it was feminist in a way that wasn't very deep like Mm. it thought it was deep by showing it to you in your face with like the art the ginsburg stuff everywhere and things like that but it was very like not feminist in my opinion or at least very 101 and this one is feminist without ever once really saying it's feminist and except to make fun of the few times it tries to be feminist like uh one of the one of the fight club members um when everything is like dissolving, she's like, this is like the second wave all over again. And th- <laughs> things like that, where it's not trying it, it is on the nose the same way, but it's on the nose through humor and through deprecating the sort of surface level of feminism of a lot of movies. And I, I, I would rather if you're going to do 101, I feel like for the most part in this kind of movie, you cannot really cover feminism. It's too, it's too deep. There's too many things. It's like trying to cover, um, like, I don't know, auteur theory in, like, one documentary, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, you can't get ins- these subjects that are really deep in, on a, on a, in cinema, really. Unless you're doing, um, I don't know, Barbara Hammer could do feminism, I think. But her, her films are really avant-garde. So in a pop, mainstream popcorn film, I don't think you can. That, that's where you. I'm coming from. So this movie, I think understands that. And instead of trying to do that is poking fun at films that do try to do that. Okay. But at the same time, it gets to the heart of the main original point of feminism, which is female solidarity. And that at the end is the one thing you can show in a film is the power of female solidarity. And it does that well. Yeah, I agree. I I resonate with a lot of that. What came to mind for me as on this question is it operated similarly the way I experienced uh, Barbie, Greta Gerwig's Barbie. And I don't think you and I have had a chance to discuss Barbie, so I'm not quite sure where you land on that. Maybe this won't work for you. But the thing that I was thinking of is, you know, it's not trying to make some grand feminist pronouncement, as I think I hear you saying. But one thing I saw it doing was trying to comically describe, at least, what it's like to be a certain kind of woman in a male-dominated world. So here it's, as we were discussing, what it's like to be a queer woman in a football-dominated high school. And Barbie is the experience of what it's like to be a woman who enjoyed playing with Barbies as a kid, but also maybe was always conflicted about them and is just trying to process all of that. That's what I felt Barbie was doing. And so this is a similar processing film in some ways when it comes to feminism that's how it seemed to me but i don't know if that makes any sense to from your perspective no i think processing is is a really good word to use because i think that's the main thing anyone is always oh anyone should always be aiming for is to continually processing conflicting information that's why I think movies that try to do some sort of pronunciation and and why the the big America Ferrera speech in Barbie just does not work for me. Right. Is that is that those that those kind of preachy moments aren't aren't ever going to be successful, I think. But presenting things that allow either your characters to process or the audience to process, that that sort of is anyone who's ever trying to keep 
learning. And feminism isn't something you will ever master. You're always going to be learning. You're always going to be listening to different people. Um, and that's another thing that that the that this film does well is that it shows what happens when you don't listen to other people or you that's sort of the way that second wave joke is like the fight club is in a way similar to the riot girl clubs of the 90s there was no as far as i know punching of each other in the riot girl clubs but they were supposed to be these sort of listening spaces and they often got corrupted by white women not listening to people of color or not letting people of color even participate um and so they're they were incomplete spaces Mm. spaces that weren't as safe as they were supposed to be um and what's fascinating about this is they were able to find sort of an updated way of looking at the attempt at having a safe space for sharing for women and see it get corrupted again in a new way in whatever way or not even in a new way in an old way because you know doing things for your own gain is sort of the achilles heel of almost every (laughs) well-meaning person because that that it, the struggle is always how do you make it about the group and not about what you'll get from the group and i think the the movie tackles that concept really well oh for sure yeah it's it's corrupted from the outside in ways we see that relate back to the football team but also corrected from within right mm-hmm. and this is exactly. on and pj's case her motivations are different, more selfish, more mercenary uh, for starting the group than Josie's are. I mean, Josie's maybe partly that at the beginning too, but I think this is another example of what's so great about Senate as uh, an actor is she does not hold back from making PJ not even just unlikable, but but really monstrous in some yes. right in some ways and so we're we're laughing she does that for jokes but it's also a commitment to the character and it's a commitment to a character who is going to have to as we were saying continue to process some of these things maybe that she's been spouting but hasn't had a chance to enact in terms of feminism yes. until this experience with the club and it's kind of like okay now put your you know, money where your mouth is. This is a chance for you to actually make a space like this. You're manipulating that for your own gains. What would it look like to handle this differently? And then, of course, there's a rift between her and Josie on on those questions, which I don't think this movie ever gets too bogged down in that sort of seriousness, but I'm glad it allows for that sort of layering and nuance, at least. Yeah, and I like the way, going back to one of the films you mentioned at the beginning, it it takes uh, aspects of Revenge of the Nerds that are really icky and shows that anybody can be that icky. Yeah. You know, because they're doing kind of the exact same duplicitous way of trying to get a girl. That I find fascinating. There's also the... um, which is, I, I, I need to look this up, but in Knives and Skin also, they are there's like an underwear selling business. And then in Bottoms, there's an underwear selling business. And I, I wonder, I just, I don't know. I don't know any teen girls. Like, are, are teen girls actually doing that these days? Because back in the 80s, it was always men stealing panties from women to sell, right? Or to do whatever men do with panties. Um, and now it's like women are taking that and just selling them themselves. 
And I, I don't know if that's an actual phenomenon that's happening or if it's just filmmakers sort of riffing on that phenomenon. You know what? I, it'll make I for an know. awkward, awkward conversation, <laughs> but I can ask um, my daughters and report back. <laughs> <laughs> are the are the kids doing this? In which case, you know, it's both gross and also like at least they're, you know, seizing the means of production <laughs> and labor. <laughs> I don't yes, know. That, that's the economic slash labor element to bottoms that, that we could also <laughs> dig into. We we could do that. Or is there anything else before we wrap up you wanted to be sure to touch on in regard oh, to bottoms? There was, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, for any millennial women run, who are listening, there is one moment about two thirds of the way in that I think is made specifically for a certain aged millennial woman. And it made me laugh so hard. It's it's a it's a song. It okay. Perfect. And I just want to shout out the filmmakers for doing that because it was so good. One of the songs and included in yeah, the soundtrack. Okay. It, it was a needle drop. Yes. The, okay. But not just the needle drop, but how they used the needle drop. I was like, this is this is such a calibrated specifically for millennial women moment. It was great. I loved it. Yeah. Music also very cleverly used in in the film. Well, Bottoms is currently playing in limited release. I believe it's going to expand in the coming weeks. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, send us a note. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Everyone, everyone around here. What is this costume you have on? This is my uniform. Everyone saw. I let the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. There's one of the intriguing titles scheduled for release this fall. You just heard from Ridley Scott's Napoleon. It stars Joaquin Phoenix. Next week on the show, Adam is back and we'll have our fall movie preview. Napoleon's Wednesday, November 22nd release date. That's right at the tail end of what we're defining as fall for the purposes of our preview. Mariah, are you excited for Napoleon? Excited about a new Ridley Scott film or maybe just Phoenix in egomaniacal tyrant mode? I do love Gladiator. And I think that Joaquin Phoenix, one of his at least top five best performances is in Gladiator. So I'm excited to see him reunited with Ridley Scott. Okay. I, I can't see any Napoleon being, this is of such old man yells at cloud of me, but I can't see any Napoleon being better than Abel Gantz's Napoleon, which I did have the privilege of seeing. And it's like big triptych, you know, three screens. Wow. Presentation. Where was that? Um, that was in Oakland, uh, 20, I think 2012. And it was like, a once in a lifetime experience. The restoration was gorgeous. The triptych was blew my mind. It's better than anything you'll ever see on IMAX. Like we need to bring it back. Um, so like <laughs> the uh, bar is very high for yes. Ridley Scott. However, so that's Napoleon. But in terms of Ridley Scott directing Joaquin Phoenix, I'm very excited for that because I know he'll get a really great performance out of him. All right. Sounds like good reasoning to me. That fall movie preview will come in the form of our top five questions about the fall movie season. We always like to do it that way to make things a little different from all the other previews out there. So if you have a question you would like to share, send it to feedback 
at filmspotting.net and we might steal it for next week's show. We're also going to continue next week our African Cinema Marathon. We'll have a review of 1973's Tuki Buki. It's currently streaming on the Criterion channel and also on Max. You can find it VOD as well or Look for it at your local library. If you want the full marathon lineup for our African Cinema Marathon, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. How about Tuki Buki, Mariah? Is this one you saw at, at a perfect theatrical setting some point, or have you seen I've it at never, all? I've never seen it on the big screen, but I, I saw it back when we had it on Filmstruck. Rest in peace, Filmstruck. Yes. Um and it's it's a it's a wonderful film. It's I wild, think, really. isn't it? It's it's was not at all what I expected. Just sort of that zany comic edge, while yeah, well, a ton a ton of seriousness to it as well. Yeah, it's a really um, unique way of looking at sort of the beginning of the modern Africa leaving, like the young people leaving the countries and mm-hmm. going to Europe, and some staying and some coming back, and that mixture of the European avant-garde cinema mixing in with traditional African cinema. It's its a lot of things all in one very fashionable movie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking another viewing of it and then uh, digging into it with Adam next week. Also next week, we will have some poll results. The current film spotting poll asks, what's your most anticipated fall movie? So basically from Labor Day through Thanksgiving, here are the options we're giving you. Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2, David Fincher's The Killer, or Ridley Scott's Napoleon. We'll give you the option of other if you want to write in a different title as well. Is there one of those that stands out most to you, Mariah? Is is your anticipation for Napoleon getting your vote then or something else? No, it's absolutely Sofia Coppola. Nice. I love her. I just pre-ordered that uh, book that she's putting out with MacBooks that's like, her scrapbook from all of her films is like things she found in boxes and I'm very excited. It's, I love Coppola's aesthetic. I think she's one of the great filmmakers of the 20th century or 21st century, whatever century this is. I don't yeah, let's know. Go I with watch, that. No, I think I watch right. movies from the twenties, so I have no <laughs> idea. It is the twenties again. It's very confusing. That's true. Sophie Coppola is one of my all time favorite filmmakers. I, I think she has had a really big, in terms of her aesthetic, um, impact on a lot of women who've made films in the last 20 years. So I always look forward to seeing what she does next. I can't argue with any of that. All right, listeners, you can vote and please do leave a comment in this poll over at filmspotting.net. Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, it's part two of their thrupling pairing. So they'll be discussing in detail Ira Sachs' passages and looking at it in the context of 1971's Sunday, Bloody Sunday, that film directed by John Schlesinger featuring Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson. The Next Picture Show looks at cinema's present via its past. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, and new episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. Time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. Yes, adulation is across the bear. God knows I know. But someone's got to supplant our standing in the way of progress, Mayor. And don't deny it, Mr. Cobblepot. You've got the magic. 
Your charisma's bigger than both of us. Come on. Mayor. Mayor. Max, elections happen in November. Is this not late December? Don't worry about it. I want you to meet Jen and Josh, my image consultants. That was Christopher Walken doing a much better Christopher Walken impression than I was able to pull off or even really attempt alongside Danny DeVito's Penguin in 1992's Batman Returns. Batman Returns, written by Sam Hamm and Daniel Waters and directed by Tim Burton. The Massacre was part of a show where we gave a lot of time to a long mailbag segment. We touched on listeners, questions on subjects like Oppenheimer, our recent top five actor-director duos. Adam also shared some personal news about a recent career change that is sending him back to his home state of Iowa for a gig teaching at the University of Iowa. Now, fear not, film spotting is not going to be affected, except that, you know, Adam... He's already sent me a syllabus, a full syllabus for next week's show. So I hope this isn't going to happen on a weekly basis going forward. Also on that show, we talked about 1965's Black Girl, the second film in our African cinema marathon. Now, Batman Returns didn't really tie into any of those things. The reason we chose it, and I think this was a selection by producer Sam, we thought maybe on that show we'd get to a review of the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. So the connections there, of course, superheroes, supervillains, and sewers. But yes, listeners did make a few more connections. Here's Josh Glover in West Fargo, North Dakota. From the moment you spoke about an infamous performer, and yeah, that's how we set up the Batman Returns Massacre, I thought, oh good, a Christopher Walken scene. But I was not expecting Josh to throw everybody off by substituting in Catherine O'Hara doing her Moira Rose character from Schitt's Creek. That was a bold and, I have to say, brilliant choice. The tie-ins might be that you had planned to review The Haunted Mansion, which also stars Danny DeVito, who Adam kind of nailed. But could it be that the town of Iowa City is preparing for Kempenar Returns? Congrats on the new gig, Adam. Uh, We also heard from Michael Roche in New York. He writes... I admire Josh's attempt at Christopher Walken's Max Shrek, but Adam really channeled Danny DeVito's raspy voice as Penguin in Tim Burton's Batman Returns. So many tie-ins this week. Most obviously, DeVito stars in The Haunted Mansion, while his wife, Rhea Perlman, is currently in Barbie. The recently departed Paul Rubens, who starred in Burton's first feature, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, has a cameo in Batman Returns as the Penguin's father. Also, the Max Shrek character is named for the actor who betrayed Count Orlock in F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, an unofficial but obvious ad- adaptation of Dracula. The character Dracula is back in theaters in the new film The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And then, of course, this specific Batman has literally returned, as Michael Keaton just reprised the role for the first time since Batman Returns in The Flash. And perhaps this isn't the forum to dive into speculation about which real-world New York tycoon Watkins Max Shrek seems modeled on dot, dot, dot. Yes, Michael, let's move on. Here's some more praise for Adam's DeVito slash Penguin impression. It comes from Brad Cutler in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. That Penguin impression was transcendent. You know what? I agree. Possibly Adam's best massacre theater performance. I'm afraid, you know, he's he's just retired from acting after delivering that one. It was so good. <laughs> Uh, We also heard from Ken Link in Flagstaff, Arizona. As far as connections go, it would depend on which film you had planned to review this week. If it was The Last Voyage of the Demeter, it's likely the connection you had in mind was Walken's character, 
Max Schreck, named for the German actor who played Count Orlock in the original film Nosferatu, which seems to have inspired the look of Demeter's Count. And, Mr. Larson, Christopher Walken is a stretch for anyone. Kudos to you for the effort. <laughs> well, th- <laughs> thank you, Ken. I will accept your pity. And again, I-, I apologize to anyone who had to hear that. Thanks to everyone who submitted an entry and some feedback. I'm going to go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat and pick a winner. Actually, Mariah, why don't why don't you do the honors as the guest host here? Pick us a winner for Massacre Theater. All right. Picking the winner. Um, the winner is Phil Fager in Hyde Park. All right. Congratulations, Phil. Go ahead and email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting t-shirt, tote bag, or you can pick a trial membership in the film spotting family. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. So Mariah has the the opportunity or or the curse maybe of participating in Massacre Theater this week. Um, she has chosen her role. So I I hope that means because you're very confident, Mariah, that you can do this character well. <laughs> no. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm confident I can't do the other character. <laughs> okay. That's my strategy. That, here. <laughs> that was the process. It was process of elimination. That is uh, a very well worn strategy here for for Massacre Theater. The only thing probably worth saying about this scene, I think it's going to be a relatively easy one to identify, especially in the context of some of our conversations on this episode. But also there is a bit of music that if we had played even two seconds of it, I think would absolutely give it away. Right. The background music here. Yeah. We're not going to do that. We're we're not going to do that. We don't want to make it that easy. So let's just do the scene straight up. I go first here. So, Mariah, if you don't mind, go ahead and give me the action. And action. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love. It is his passion. It is his fault he didn't lock the garage. Abe, what are you talking about? Ooh. Abe, my father loves this car more than life itself. A man with priorities so far out of whack doesn't deserve such a fine automobile. No, no. Apparently, you don't understand. Wow. Abe, he never drives it. He just rubs it with a diaper. And scene. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I really hope that's like the old school diaper, though. You know, the cloth ones. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing. I I hope so. I think... That's that's the way classic cars should be cleaned, not the disposable ones. Absolutely. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 4. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. So your folks are going out of town. Just use your best judgment. You know we trust you. You got the place all to yourself? A good time, Joe. In the privacy of your own home. Just take those old records If you've seen Risky Business, there's exactly one image that comes to mind when you hear Bob Seger singing old-time rock and roll. 
That is Tom Cruise in his dress shirt and undies. Mariah, let's get this out of the way right at the top here. Cruise's moves, dancing, impressive. What what did you think when you sat down and this iconic moment played out again? What did you think this time? You might say he has all the right moves. Oh, wow. You're going you're gonna to go there. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I had to make that joke. Um, <laughs> it is an I'm elaborate an old... routine. I, I was wondering, you know, where did Joel Goodson <laughs> learn all these moves? I didn't know the kid had it in him. I truly, like, where, did, did he go to dance lessons? Right. Does he go to dance camp? <laughs> he, he, how did he not slip on the, if I tried to do that, I would have slipped and fallen. It's incredible it's, stuff. It's still so good. Also, I got to say, really short. It's not like this long montage. I mean, it's certainly not the whole song and maybe, you know, just left us wanting, wanting more. Not a bad strategy, I think. Yeah. Risky Business does turn 40 this year. Uh, an 80s sex comedy. It seemed like a good pairing with Bottoms for this show. Risky Business, written directed by Paul Brickman. It was the eighth highest grossing movie of 1983. It did make Tom Cruise a star. Here's the plot. Brief reminder. Cruise is Joel Goodson. And yes, his his name, last name is actually Goodson. He's a high school senior living in a wealthy Chicago suburb. Joel looks the part of the high achieving suburbanite. He's got solid SATs. He belongs to the Future Enterprisers Club. He's got his eyes on the Ivy League. But when his parents go out of town, leaving Joel alone, things go south quickly. He puts his dad's Porsche in Lake Michigan and along with call girl Rebecca DeMornay, turns his house into a brothel. So Mariah, I'm dying to know what your history is with this movie. And maybe we should start by acknowledging that you know, this is a sex comedy, but it's also of a little bit different vibe, it seemed to yeah. me. There's more in its mind than just raunchy jokes and gratuitous nudity. There's a little bit of both. Uh, Roger Ebert kind of identified this at the time. He gave Risky Business a four-star rave, said it's one of the smartest, funniest, most perceptive satires in a long time. It not only invites comparison with The Graduate, it earns it. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about your history with the movie, Mariah, and if you think Ebert was correct. I, I actually do think he's correct. What So I first saw this movie when I was in my 20s, and I did not like it. I didn't. I liked Tom Cruise in it. I didn't understand the satire at all. Um, all I saw was, you know, the way the women are filmed and things like that. And I was just like, ugh. And then, but I, so I went in rewatching it, expecting to not like it. And I came out absolutely loving the movie. I actually, nice. it's definitely a movie that was too smart for me when I saw it mm. the first time. Um, watching it this time because I had, and I had only remembered it being a sex comedy, and it is mostly a satire, um, like a almost a drama. There's some comedy in it, but it 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 is so biting in its condemnation of capitalism, and like it sets him up as as you know this kid that's about to go off to college. But like, there's the scene with his friends where he's asking them what they want to do after college, and every single one is like, make money, make money, make money, and he in through the course of the night find has to make money for various you know hijinky reasons but in the end you see that he is ready to be put into the capitalist like sausage machine and he's going to come out as a as a reagan era you know capitalist pig kind of like um michael douglas in wall street mm. right like greed is good he's going to go and he knows he's like gone through and had to understand because of the hijinks he got into how capitalism runs everything, including Rebecca De Mornay's, uh sex worker, she 
this I did not remember the movie treating the sex workers like literally like workers. They're not ever coddled. They're not ever needed to be quote unquote rescued. They're not looked down on. They're just workers like anybody else um, working the system. But on top of that, there's like all of this like anti-sex nightmares that he has that because this was this era where it was like abstinence was all that they would teach and and it shows that like really we should be teaching teenagers to embrace sex and not embrace capitalism but that's not what's happening and so the movie by the end you're like oh no (laughs) but also because we're in this society where sex and capitalism are sort of combined it's like none of it is good by the time you're an adult this is a really bleak movie yeah um, and really, really smart. I I had not remembered truly how smart it was. And even the stuff that I thought was icky, like it's still, you know, it, when you first see it, it's still a little icky how he how she's introduced. But the fact that he's introducing her like a penthouse model and then subverting that idea because she isn't just a sex object. She is a businesswoman on her own. It You kind of have to have that penthouse image in order to subvert it. Yeah. And so I'm uncomfortable not because he did it, but because that that image even exists, if that makes sense. Um, So it's less on the movie and more that that society created such an image. It's just a really smart movie. I kind of want to see it on the big screen now. Also, when I first saw it, I had never been to Chicago. And now there's the Highland Park. I understand all about Highland Park. There's a joke about someone's cousin from Skokie. I actually know where Skokie (laughs) is now. (laughs) The um, geography of the train does not make any sense. Of course I not. Had Robert, I had Robert watch it and I was like, does this make sense? Because I don't think it does. And he's like, there is no train that does this loop. You can't get from Highland Park to the South Loop to the whatever. And I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> but I do think it pairs nicely with Bottoms because they're both sort of riffing on a template and then adding smarter uh, criticisms and satires into the template. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's all right. Uh, just quickly on the Chicago stuff. Um, yeah, and Robert Daniels, who's um, a lifelong Chicagoan, he would know. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the proximity of the city from Joe's from Joel's uh, suburb, I think Glencoe is actually where they they say they live. Um, yeah, the, how quickly he gets downtown for some of those scenes. <laughs> I'm jealous of. Even in a Porsche, I think that's a little, a little harder than that. But, you know, this is no fugitive in terms of, which Michael Phillips and I talked about last week, in terms of the use of Chicago locations, but it is distinct. And certainly in terms of class, um, it makes its points appropriately and well. And I think that is where one of the places this movie was very interesting to me is that even though Joel has all the advantages in every way you can imagine, uh, in money, in, you know, race, in uh, just his family wealth, all this stuff, um, the school he goes to being well-funded, this kid's a mess, right? And this is where it connects back to the fantasy elements that you were talking about. It's fascinating to me how almost every one of the fantasies we get, which are there and you would expect from sort of a comic sexploitation movie, think about how they each end. And this starts with the one that opens the movie, right? Joel is describing to the camera that I think he wanders into a neighbor's house in this dream he's having and a mystery woman is in the shower. It's not the neighbor. It's some woman in the shower and Just when, I think even in his words, he says things are about to get interesting, what happens? It changes into a stress dream about being late for a college entrance exam. 
Finally, I get to the door. And I find myself in a room full of kids taking their college boards. I'm over three hours late. I've got two minutes to take the whole test. This happens every time um, he has some sort of fantasy that is filmed exactly, you know, you describe it as a penthouse. The thing that came to mind for me is maybe an early 80s MTV music video that Joel oh, yes. might have been watching, right? The the ridiculous Absolutely. moment when, when um, she actually turns up, when Lana turns up and the wind blows open the doors of his parents' back patio, you know, that is so torn from a music video. It's almost like this is the only way Joel can imagine sex being. But what happens there? That's not a fantasy. I don't think, this is a question I want to ask you. I don't think that scene, the first one with Lana, is a fantasy. But even though it does end in them, you know, being together for the night, again, this long, cheesy sex montage, what's the first thing that happens in the morning? Exactly what you were talking about. Economic realities come into play. How much does he owe her? How's he going to get the money? And then from there on, it just escalates hijinks. I love how you describe that. It's true, but it escalates where everything becomes about money. And Joel has already had these things intertwined in his mind. He cannot bring any of his erotic dreams to fruition because he's worried about making enough money and how's he going to make enough money as an adult? Well, he's got to get the right test score. He's got to get in the right college. And all of this has made the kid impotent. He's spiritually impotent. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think this is a movie that shows, you know, that the way to shake off of that is to embrace these modes of capitalism. I think it's more to show that Joel is going to use these false methods that are being shoved down his throat in a way that his parents would disapprove of, but is successful, that gets him essentially where he wants to go, but leaves him dead inside. So I think you're right in your description. I think even I think even the parents are already sort of dead inside. Sure. That, like she's more concerned about maybe a scratch on a crystal egg, which is something that means literally nothing. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's just capitalism at its absolute worst, like this expensive crystal egg that does nothing. It doesn't help with anything. I don't even think it brings her joy. You know, it's just a status symbol. Right. She seems just to be. Like, it's- just like Joel is a status symbol for them, him getting into Princeton, mm-hmm. which is where his dad went. Like they're raising him to be a status symbol, just like the, the egg. It's it's really well plotted movie. It's interesting. Um, you know, Janet Carroll plays Joel's mother. She seems to be the more compassionate, understanding, lenient one for much of the movie, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's the father um who seems to be more Nicholas Pryor plays the father, who seems to be more strict and demanding of Joel. But you're so right, Mariah, when towards the end of the film, she just loses it when she sees one scratch on the egg. And I think it represents everything uh, you were just talking about. So let me ask you this question. And this is more about the aesthetics of the film. There is a way to see almost all of this from the time Joel dials Lana's number to when she shows up as one of his erotic fantasies. And think about how this movie sounds, looks, and feels. It's more of a nightmare. It's almost like a fantasy that's teetering on the edge of a nightmare. You've got this woozy tangerine dream score. 
You even have how the camera is employed. Two cinematographers working on this film, Bruce Surtees and Reynaldo Villalobos. The camera floats a little bit here and there in a way that, to me, recalled the unsteadiness you feel when you're having a dream. And then I already talked about, you know, the way these uh, fantasies are carried out and depicted in the film. Um, what did you think just about that aesthetic style at all? I'm not suggesting, you know, this is a movie Joel wake or this is a dream Joel wakes up from at the end of the movie, but it felt a little bit something akin to that through much of the running time. Yeah, I think the the way that the fluid way that it's filmed really puts you in Joel's perspective as a character. Like his whole world is right now completely up in the air. It was steady. He had his plan. He was he was in the the entrepreneurs club, like he was just step by step by step. And then he did what his friend said and said, what the F and just did something out of the norm. And now everything is messed up and the camera changes how it films after then to show you like his spiral. But I, I almost wonder if, even if he hadn't fallen into this, like sex hijinks, capitalist, whatever, he would have ended up equally as corrupted. He just corrupted in like a different mode now. Well, there's an interesting line he has at the very beginning. He's out at a diner with his friends and they're all talking about where they're going to go to school and what jobs they want to have. Right. And they only talk about the jobs in terms of salaries. And Joel is the one who says, does anybody want to accomplish anything or just make money? So, you know, I'm not sure what he means by accomplish anything. Right. But he's definitely setting that aside from just making Money And they all kind of laugh at him and say, just make money, right? This is the culture they're living in. But I think that speaks to what you're talking about. You know, Joel is already maybe questioning or not as bought in on the track that has been set out for him at the beginning. And the movie... And maybe this is where we can talk about the character. The movie kind of pushes him The movie pushes him. And we can talk about Lana here, I think. How we see her. I agree with you totally that she and... You know, the fellow sex workers that she gets to come to Joel's house for the near the second half of the film. You know, I I agree that they're depicted as especially her incredibly intelligent. She's a businesswoman. She's essentially a businesswoman. Right. How does Joel describe her at one point? It was great the way her mind worked. No doubt, no guilt, no fear, none of my specialties. And I do think that De Mornay plays her, gives her this slippery intelligence that's always percolating just underneath that that sort of pinup surface. But, you know, you could argue that Lana, as much as Joel's father, is the one who guides him down that capitalist path. She's working, you know, in an illicit business, but she's just as mercenary about earning cash. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about all that in the context, especially of De Mornay's performance? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting that no matter what path he is offered in this film, it ends in corrupted capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what I think what's interesting about her character is that she isn't any worse than the you know the the Princeton recruiter any of those people she's not demonized in any way because I I think is it Brickman I think he sees every single economic path within the world of of Reagan leads to this mm. like there is no good path except that scene that you brought up where he he says at one point 
um, almost as a joke, but it's like maybe he's thinking about do something for our fellow man. He, he says something like that. And then they're all like, no, just make money. And mm. you, you, you think maybe he was thinking about other people at some point in his life. And as he's been pushed towards this college dream, it's all about what what can the world do for him, not what he can do for the world. And Lana is in the exact same space. She's only really thinking about herself and for uh, to some extent her her girlfriends. But at the same time, she's she's really just seeing like here's an empty house we can all set up and make good for ourselves. Um, and I guess I think I think the way she plays her is really interesting because she is she seeing him as a a, a mark? Is she seeing him as a kid that she can help get into the being a man. Like, is he? Did she? Is she seeing him at all, or is she just? Mm. You know, he's just another cog for her. It's it's never very clear. And I like that I like, about the I performance, like about actually. It. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just don't know. And sh- we should note too that Lana is dealing with the reality of. You know, Joe Pantoliano here plays her pimp who is violent and threatening, um, you know, and so that's a factor that she has guiding her economic decisions that Joel does not at all. So I don't mean to put them on the same level, but I just I really like the performance because of the complications that um, are written into the character and that I do think DeMornay brings out um, in her portrayal as well. How about Cruz? So you said you liked him, you know, the first time you saw this. Did you notice anything different on this revisit in terms of his performance? The thing I kept thinking of, especially in that first scene with his friends at the diner, is I kept thinking about Jerry Maguire, which is a movie I saw in theaters back when it came out in 1996. I was 10. I should not have seen it. My parents let me go. Um, They were like, it's fine. Um, I love that movie. And it feels like Joel is maybe, or Jerry is sort of Joel grown up. Like Interesting. Yeah, because it, at the beginning of Jerry Maguire, he has, he's all about making money off of these players. And then that one, the player's son, who's got the player has a, a concussion and he's like, shouldn't someone tell him to stop? And then Jerry's like, oh no. And then he, he um, has this understanding that he's like a piece of shit. And he's like, I'm not who my father wanted to me to be, I'm not who I wanted to be. And it's like, is that where Joel's headed? And I kind of, it was interesting to watch it, not know, knowing that like Tom Cruise has not played, has no concept of Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire does not exist yet. Cameron Crowe has not written Jerry Maguire. But this idea of looking at like the seeds he plants in this movie and then maybe riffs on them a little bit in Jerry Maguire made it an even richer viewing this time because Jerry really is what happens when Reagan era capitalism, you go to sleep that and wake up with a conscience, which is what he says. And it almost made it more bittersweet to watch this time mm. because I, the first time I watched it, I was just like, ah, Joel's such an ass. <laughs> now I kind of feel bad for him. I'm like, oh no, yeah. he got pushed into this path. And you know, there's that line that he says jokingly about helping our fellow man. But part of me is like, I think he wanted to be a, an actual good person and he, he wanted to to do things for others and then coming of age meant letting go of that in, in this part of the eighties. And that's really sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sad. Yeah. I felt the same way about him watching it this time around. I love that idea of looking at almost like Jerry Maguire is the redemption of Joel Goodson. <laughs> that's what it feels I really, like. I really like that. And you know, 
just thinking in terms of the context of Cruz's career, as Joel goes from this kid who, as we've described, is kind of, you know, suffering from panic attacks almost at the beginning to a grinning Ray-Ban wearing businessman by the end of this, especially, you know, at the at the height when they're really starting to roll in the money and think they figured this all out. You kind of see him becoming Tom Cruise right before your eyes. You know, it's like this kid with a lot of charisma, but seems young. Um, And then an hour later, it's like, oh, no, that's Tom Cruise. And he's smiling at me as if he's going to eat me and I'm going to like it. And he's just found his persona that he would carry and obviously give variances on and varieties to and explore, as you're saying, maybe in Jerry Maguire, but it's almost like he locked it in just as Joel, interestingly, was locking in his fate. It's almost as if Cruz is locking in his, his box office fate and persona here too. So one thing we got to touch on though, Mariah, before we, we wrap up, um, a question that Michael Phillips threw out at me last episode when he was on with me and knew we were going to be talking about risky business. He mentioned that, um, Paul Brickman had an original ending in mind and filmed for risky business. We both found this online and watched it and, I don't know. I'll, I I won't describe it too much, but maybe just ask you, um, and you can get into what you thought about it in terms of changing the the contours of the theatrical release at all for you. Honestly, I didn't like the director's cut. Interesting, uh, because it infantilizes Lana. Okay. I found it. It's the only beat I can see where that. he feels like he's now taking care of her, or the film is looking at her as someone who needs to be taken care of. And I I was like, no. Whereas the, the, the version that's in the theatrical one, they're sort of barbing at each other about now she owes him money. Like he's the, he's the pimp now or whatever. And it's, it's funny on the surface, but it's actually a bleaker ending because it, 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 because it's funny it has that pathos under it where you're like, Oh no, this is horrible. This is, this is really bad. They should not be joking here. This is, mm-hmm. they're going to go down, you know, they are going to be Gordon Gecko by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas that ending, it's like Brickman sees, sees the, the tragedy and wants the audience to see it on the surface. And I, I don't, I don't think it's as strong because I, you still see this. You, I think it's stronger to have tragedy masked with comedy than to just end on a tragic note and everyone's like, oh no. Cause then you're not really leaving the audience with anything to think about. Yeah. You're telling them how to how to feel at the end. Whereas the other one, if you the more you think about it, the more you're like, oh no, that wasn't actually funny. So whoever gave him that note, I think was really smart because I, I think it's a smarter ending, which is wild because normally a, a studio note is like ruins a movie. But I'm on I'm on team studio in this case. Okay. I think it was a stronger ending. That's fascinating for, for me. I mean, my guess yeah. would be the studio note. My my cynical guess would be because on the surface, as we're talking about surfaces, it is a happier ending because it has the jokes, as you say. They're walking after having been out to dinner together. They're walking through a park and yeah, barbing each other. And my guess is the studio suggested it because it at least hangs the possibility in the air that they might stay as a couple somehow. Doesn't tell us that for sure, but it leaves the audience. If an audience member wanted to go out of this movie rooting for Joel and Lana as a couple, the studio prescribed ending 
at least suggested that. But I found enough darkness in there, in the way you're describing, Mariah, that I thought the ending, the original ending, was fine. I didn't think about what you just said about Brickman's ending, and I think it's very on point for one reason. So here, they're in that restaurant. And the film ends with them in the restaurant. And what she does is she gets up from the table and he tells her to come closer. She sits at the chair next to him. He says, closer yet. And she sits on his lap. And that's got to be what you're talking about, right? Because. Yeah. And he cradles her. And he cradles her. And it is infantilizing. Um, I think that's, that's, you know, dead on. My guess is what Brickman might have been going for is you'll notice there's a disconcerting cut before that last moment and suddenly it's night outside the big window that they're sitting at at this fancy restaurant in a high rise overlooking it looks like lakeshore drive and so i think in you know the intention might have been to make things literally darker and i read it somewhat as a goodbye like they're acknowledging this is the last time we're going to see each other and Mm. so they were going to have some sort of non-sexual embrace But Hmm. you're describing it totally accurately, too. In maybe trying to make it non-sexual, this ending makes it problematic in a different way because it changes the power balance, which is one of the cool things about their relationship. The whole film is how that really never tilts Joel's way. It's almost always either equal when they become business partners or Lana has the upper hand. So so you're right that it does um, kind of skew that oddly. In the finale, I guess if I had to vote, I'd probably go for the theatrical ending as well, just because I did read those notes of melancholy underneath it, as you did. Which is probably, you know, I guess I'm not team completely studio notes. It's studio notes and then Brickman taking those studio notes and making it melancholic. Sure. But I think that's a good point. Because of the studio note of make it make it so that, you know, half glass full people can have whatever it, the half glass empty is actually a completely empty glass. Mm. And that's my take. <laughs> no, I think it ended I, up being bleaker because of the, the mandate um, for people who, who are reading what he's writing under the surface. Yeah. It might be the situation where, you know, um, giving restrictions some sometimes often results in greater creativity. That's, so. that's why those movies made during the, you know, the code are yep. as bleak as they are sometimes. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Good comparison. Well, Risky Business, which as you can tell, uh, there's a lot more to it than maybe you remember. It is currently available on Paramount Plus and Video On Demand. You can also look for it on Betamax, Laserdisc, VHS, at your local video rental outlet. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, let us know. Send an email to feedback at filmspotting.net. That puts a wrap on this show. If you would like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, or Threads, you can find Adam at Filmspotting and I am at Larson on Film. Mariah, how are you negotiating the social media apocalypse these days? Where should folks look for you? I am attempting to grow my blue sky. That's the Twitter replacement I have enjoyed the most. It's still a little, it reminds me of like Twitter in 2009, um, except that you can upload photos and you don't need TwitPic. So there's that, but you can do GIFs, which is <laughs> that once they get to GIFs, it'll be great. Um, but so I'm on uh, Old Film Slicker on Blue Sky, but I am still on Twitter. I do still post there sometimes. And then obviously, letterboxed and then my main non-paid outlet is my newsletter um however it is a 
paid newsletter. So, but I am having a 20% off forever discount for new paid subscribers until I leave for TIFF. Okay. So until September 6th, uh, if you sign up. Good timing. So where should folks go to do that? That's oldfilmsflicker.substack.com. And um, the main thing I do there is is uh, highlight films directed by women every Friday. But I also write a lot about silent films. So if you're a fan of movies that are 100 years old, that is a great place to go. Excellent. Here on the show, the current film spotting poll has us looking ahead to the fall movie season. So you can vote for your most anticipated movie of the fall over at filmspotting.net. If you'd like a show t-shirt or any other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. More information about joining the Film Spotting family and giving us that support can be found at filmspottingfamily.com. You can listen to the show early and ad free that way. You'll also get a weekly newsletter from producer Sam, monthly bonus shows, and you can access the entire Film Spotting archive. If any of that sounds good, check it out at filmspottingfamily.com. Opening on streaming this week, you are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. It's part of the Netflix Adam Sandler-verse, I guess, though it looks like Sandler just has a supporting role in this one. It is based on the 2005 YA novel. Sam tells me, has a note here, that there is good buzz on this one so far. In limited release, Scrapper, which one Mariah E. Gates said on Letterboxd, it's a knockout debut from newcomer Lola Campbell. Care to say anything more, Mariah? Yeah, she is really fantastic. She is uh, um, playing a young woman who's dealing with the loss of a parent and the re, um, return of another parent while sort of dealing with grief and living alone. And she's the, she's the titular scrapper. She like steals scrap metal and bikes and is just sort of trying to make her life uh, at 12. She is like this character like can do more at 12 than I ever could. I probably more than I can do right now, to be honest, but it doesn't, but the reason Lola is so good is she's not precocious. Mm. It's not played precociously. It's, it, it's really grounded and really, um, just, a, a I don't know what she's going to keep doing, but I, she can do comedy and drama and, um, make you feel really sad and really like laugh at the same time. And she's phenomenal little child actor. Or not even little, she's a teen now, I guess, but phenomenal child actor. All right. Well, that's Scrapper, which is in limited release. In wide release, we have Golda, Helen Mirren, in a biopic about Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. And also Gran Turismo is coming out. This one based on a true story directed by Neil Blomkamp of District 9 and Elysium. Retribution is also out in wide release. Liam Neeson, this time he's trapped in a car with a bomb and his children comes from director Nimrod Antal, who made the, I think, pretty good 2010s Predators. And should have mentioned, I believe in limited release, but opening wider in the coming weeks is, of course, Bottoms, which, Mariah, you and I can both recommend, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you for doing that and coming on the show to talk about Bottoms, to revisit Risky Business. And will you come back, even though we also subjected you to Massacre Theater? Uh, absolutely. Hopefully, Rachel Sennott has a, another August movie. It'll be a new, <laughs> new like, Rachel Sennott Hot August or something. An hot, annual hot tradition. Rachel Sennott August nights. I don't know. I would um, love it. I would love it if we could work that out. Let's uh, let's start the petition. I, I will reach out to her people. Okay, no. sounds good. <laughs> I don't know her people. <laughs>
<laughs> well, thank you again, Mariah. Next week, it is the long-awaited return of Adam Kempenauer. He's going to help me put together a fall movie preview. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.